Section 16 of The Platner Story and Others. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Gantz. The Platner Story and Others by H.G. Wells. The Sad Story of a Dramatic Critic. I was, you shall hear immediately why I am not now, Egbert Craddock Cummins. The name remains. I am still, heaven help me, dramatic critic to the fiery cross. What I shall be in a little while I do not know. I write in great trouble and confusion of mind. I will do what I can to make myself clear in the face of terrible difficulties. You must bear with me a little. When a man is rapidly losing his own identity, he naturally finds a difficulty in expressing himself. I will make it perfectly plain in a minute, when once I get my grip upon the story. Let me see, where am I? I wish I knew. Ah, I have it. Dead self. Egbert Craddock Cummins. In the past, I should have disliked writing anything quite so full of I as this story must be. It is full of eyes before and behind, like the beast in Revelation, the one with a head like a calf, I am afraid. But my tastes have changed since I became a dramatic critic and studied the masters, GRS, GBS, GAS, and the others. Everything has changed since then. At least the story is about myself, so that there is some excuse for me. And it is really not egotism, because, as I say, since those days my identity has undergone an entire alteration. That passed. I was, in those days, rather a nice fellow, rather shy, taste for grey in my clothes, weedy little moustache, face interesting, slight stutter which I had caught in early life from a schoolfellow, engaged to a very nice girl named Delia, fairly knew she was, cigarettes, liked me because I was human and original, considered I was like lamb on the strength of the stutter, I believe, father an eminent authority on postage stamps, she read a great deal in the British Museum, a perfect pairing ground for literary people, that British Museum. You should read George Edgerton and Justin Huntley, McCarthy and Gissing and the rest of them. We loved in our intellectual way and shared the brightest hopes. All gone now. And her father liked me because I seemed honestly eager to hear about stamps. She had no mother. Indeed, I had the happiest prospects a young man could have. I never went to theatres in those days. My Aunt Charlotte, before she died, had told me not to. Then Barnaby, the editor of The Fiery Cross, made me, in spite of my spasmodic efforts to escape, dramatic critic. He is a fine, healthy man, Barnaby, with an enormous head of frizzy black hair and a convincing manner, and he caught me on the staircase going to see Wembley. He had been dining, and was more than usually buoyant. "'Hello, Cummins,' he said. "'The very man I want.' He caught me by the shoulder, or the collar, or something, ran me up the little passage, and flung me over the waste-paper basket into the armchair in his office. "'Pray be seated,' he said as he did so. 
Then he ran across the room and came back with some pink and yellow tickets and pushed them into my hand. Opera comique, he said. Thursday, Friday, the Surrey. Saturday, the frivolity. That's all, I think. But, I began. Glad you're free, he said, snatching some proofs off the desk and beginning to read. I don't quite understand, I said. Hey, he said at the top of his voice, as though he thought I had gone and was startled at my remark. Do you want me to criticize these plays? Do something with them. Did you think it was a treat? But I can't. Did you call me a fool? Well, I've never been to a theater in my life. Virgin soil. But I don't know anything about it, you know. That's just it. New view. No habits, no cliches in stock. Ours is a live paper, not a bag of tricks. None of your clockwork professional journalism in this office. And I can rely on your integrity. But I've conscientious scruples. He caught me up suddenly and put me outside his door. Go and talk to Wembley about that, he said. He'll explain. As I stood perplexed, he opened the door again, said, I forgot this, thrust a fourth ticket into my hand, it was for that night in twenty minutes' time, and slammed the door upon me. His expression was quite calm, but I caught his eye. I hate arguments. I decided that I would take his hint and become, to my own destruction, a dramatic critic. I walked slowly down the passage to Wembley. That Barnaby has a remarkably persuasive way. He has made few suggestions during our pleasant intercourse of four years that he has not ultimately won me round to adopting. It may be, of course, that I am of a yielding disposition. Certainly I am too apt to take my color from my circumstances. It is indeed to my unfortunate susceptibility to vivid impressions that all my misfortunes are due. I have already alluded to the slight stammer I had acquired from a schoolfellow in my youth. However, this is a digression. I went home in a cab to dress. I will not trouble the reader with my thoughts about the first night audience, strange assembly as it is. Those I reserve for my memoirs. Nor the humiliating story of how I got lost during the entr'acte in a lot of red plush passages and saw the third act from the gallery. The only point upon which I wished to lay stress was the remarkable effect of the acting upon me. You must remember I had lived a quiet and retired life, and had never been to the theatre before, and that I am extremely sensitive to vivid impressions. At the risk of repetition, I must insist upon these points. The first effect was a profound amazement, not untinctured by alarm. The phenomenal unnaturalness of acting is a thing discounted in the minds of most people by early visits to the theatre. They get used to the fantastic gestures, the flamboyant emotions, the weird mouthings, melodious snortings, agonizing yelps, lip-gnawings, glaring horrors, and other emotional symbolism of the stage. It becomes at last a mere deaf and dumb language to them, which they read intelligently pari-passu with the hearing of the dialogue. But all this was new to me. The thing was called a modern comedy. 
the people were supposed to be English and were dressed like fashionable Americans of the current epoch, and I fell into the natural error of supposing that the actors were trying to represent human beings. I looked round on my first night audience with a kind of wonder, discovered, as all new dramatic critics do, that it rested with me to reform the drama, and, after a supper choked with emotion, went off to the office to write a column, piebald with the new paragraphs, as all my stuff is, it fills out so, and purple with indignation. Barnaby was delighted. But I could not sleep that night. I dreamt of actors, actors glaring, actors smiting their chests, actors flinging out a handful of extended fingers, actors smiling bitterly, laughing despairingly, failing hopelessly, dying idiotically. I got up at eleven with a slight headache, read my notice in the fiery cross, breakfasted, and went back to my room to shave. It's my habit to do so. Then an odd thing happened. I could not find my razor. Suddenly it occurred to me that I had not unpacked it the day before. Ah, said I, in front of the looking-glass. Then, hello. Quite involuntarily, when I had thought of my portmanteau, I had flung up the left arm, fingers fully extended, and clutched at my diaphragm with my right hand. I am an acutely self-conscious man at all times. The gesture struck me as absolutely novel for me. I repeated it for my own satisfaction. Odd. Then, rather puzzled, I returned to my portmanteau. After shaving, my mind reverted to the acting I had seen, and I entertained myself before the cheval glass with some imitations of Jaffray's more exaggerated gestures. Really, one might think it a disease, I said. Stage walkitis. There's many a truth spoken in jest. Then, if I remember rightly, I went off to see Wembley, and afterwards lunched at the British Museum with Delia. We actually spoke about our prospects in the light of my new appointment. But that appointment was the beginning of my downfall. From that day I necessarily became a persistent theatre-goer, and almost insensibly I began to change. The next thing I noticed after the gesture about the razor was to catch myself bowing ineffably when I met Delia, and stooping in an old-fashioned courtly way over her hand. Directly I caught myself, I straightened myself up and became very uncomfortable. I remember she looked at me curiously. Then, in the office, I found myself doing nervous business, fingers on teeth, when Barnaby asked me a question I could not very well answer. Then, in some trifling difference with Adelia, I clasped my hand to my brow, and I pranced through my social transactions at times singularly like an actor. I tried not to. No one could be more keenly alive to the errant absurdity of the histrionic bearing. And I did. It began to dawn on me what it all meant. The acting I saw was too much for my delicately strung nervous system. I have always, I know, been too amenable to the suggestions of my circumstances. Night after night of concentrated attention to the conventional attitudes and intonation of the English stage was gradually affecting my speech and carriage. I was giving way to the inflection of sympathetic imitation. 
Night after night, my plastic nervous system took the print of some new amazing gesture, some new emotional exaggeration, and retained it. A kind of theatrical veneer threatened to plate over and obliterate my private individuality altogether. I saw myself in a kind of vision. Sitting by myself one night, my new self seemed to me to glide, posing and gesticulating across the room. He clutched his throat, he opened his fingers, he opened his legs in walking like a high-class marionette. He went from attitude to attitude. He might have been clockwork. Directly after this, I made an ineffectual attempt to resign my theatrical work. But Barnaby persisted in talking about the polywiddle divorce all the time I was with him, and I could get no opportunity of saying what I wished. And then Delia's manner began to change towards me. The ease of our intercourse vanished. I felt she was learning to dislike me. I grinned and capered and scowled and posed at her in a thousand ways and knew, with what a voiceless agony, that I did it all the time. I tried to resign again, and Barnaby talked about X and Z and Y in the new review and gave me a strong cigar to smoke and so routed me. And then I walked up the Assyrian gallery in the manner of Irving to meet Delia, and so precipitated the crisis. Ah, dear, I said with more sprightliness and emotion in my voice than had ever been in all my life before I became, to my own undoing, a dramatic critic. She held her hand out rather coldly, scrutinizing my face as she did so. I prepared with a new one grace to walk by her side. Egbert, she said, standing still, and thought. Then she looked at me. I said nothing. I felt what was coming. I tried to be the old Egbert Craddock Cummins of shambling gait and stammering sincerity whom she loved, but I felt even as I did so that I was a new thing, a thing of surging emotions and mysterious fixity, like no human being that ever lived except upon the stage. Egbert, she said, you are not yourself. Ah, Involuntarily I clutched my diaphragm and averted my head, as is the way with them. There, she said. What do you mean, I said, whispering in vocal italics. You know how they do it. Turning on her, perplexity on face, right hand down, left on brow. I knew quite well what she meant. I knew quite well the dramatic unreality of my behavior. But I struggled against it in vain. What do you mean, I said, and in a kind of hoarse whisper, I don't understand. She really looked as though she disliked me. What do you keep on posing for, she said. I don't like it. You didn't used to. Didn't used to, I said slowly, repeating this twice. I glared up and down the gallery with short, sharp glances. We are alone, I said swiftly. Listen. I poked my forefinger towards her and glared at her. I am under a curse. I saw her hand tighten upon her sunshade. You are under some bad influence or other, said Delia. You should give it up. I never knew anyone change as you have done. Delia, I said, lapsing into the pathetic. Pity me. Oh, Delia, 
pity me. She eyed me critically. Why you keep playing the fool like this, I don't know, she said. Anyhow, I really cannot go about with a man who behaves as you do. You made us both ridiculous on Wednesday. Frankly, I dislike you as you are now. I met you here to tell you so, as it's about the only place where we can be sure of being alone together. Delia, said I with intensity, knuckles of clenched hands white. You don't mean. I do, said Delia. A woman's lot is sad enough at the best of times, but with you... I clapped my hand on my brow. So goodbye, said Delia, without emotion. Oh, Delia, I said, not this. Goodbye, Mr. Cummins, she said. By a violent effort, I controlled myself and touched her hand. I tried to say some word of explanation to her. She looked into my working face and winced. I must do it, she said hopelessly. Then she turned from me and began walking rapidly down the gallery. Heavens, how the human agony cried within me. I loved Delia, but nothing found expression. I was already too deeply crusted with my acquired self. Goodbye, I said at last, watching her retreating figure. How I hated myself for doing it. After she had vanished, I repeated in a dreamy way, Goodbye, looking hopelessly round me. Then, with a kind of heartbroken cry, I shook my clenched fists in the air, staggered to the pedestal of a winged figure, buried my face in my arms, and made my shoulders heave. Something within me said ass as I did so. I had the greatest difficulty in persuading the museum policeman, who was attracted by my cry of agony, that I was not intoxicated, but merely suffering from a transient indisposition. But even this great sorrow has not availed to save me from my fate. I see it. Everyone sees it. I grow more theatrical every day. And no one could be more painfully aware of the pungent silliness of theatrical ways. The quiet and nervous but pleasing E.C. Cummins vanishes. I cannot save him. I am driven like a dead leaf before the winds of March. My tailor even enters into the spirit of my disorder. He has a peculiar sense of what is fitting. I tried to get a dull gray suit from him in this spring, and he foisted a brilliant blue upon me, and I see he has put braid down the sides of my new dress trousers. My hairdresser insists upon giving me a wave. I am beginning to associate with actors. I detest them, but it is only in their company that I can feel I am not glaringly conspicuous. Their talk infects me. I notice a growing tendency to dramatic brevity, to dashes and pauses in my style, to a punctuation of bows and attitudes. Barnaby has remarked it too. I offended Wembley by calling him dear boy yesterday. I dread the end, but I cannot escape from it. The fact is, I am being obliterated. Living a grey, retired life all my youth, I came to the theatre a delicate sketch of a man, a thing of tints and faint lines. Their gorgeous colouring has effaced me altogether. People forget how much mode of expression, method of movement are a matter of contagion. 
I have heard of stage-struck people before and thought it a figure of speech. I spoke of it jestingly as a disease. It is no jest. It is a disease. And I have got it bad. Deep down within me I protest against the wrong done to my personality. Unavailingly. For three hours or more a week I have to go and concentrate my attention on some fresh play, and the suggestions of the drama strengthen their awful hold upon me. My manners grow so flamboyant, my passions so professional, that I doubt, as I said at the outset, whether it is really myself that behaves in such a manner. I feel merely the core to this dramatic casing that grows thicker and presses upon me, me and mine. I feel like King John's abbot in his cope of lead. I doubt indeed whether I should not abandon the struggle altogether, leave this sad world of ordinary life for which I am so ill-fitted, abandon the name of Cummins for some professional pseudonym, complete my self-effacement, and, a thing of tricks and tatters of posing and pretense, go upon the stage. It seems my only resort to hold the mirror up to nature. For in the ordinary life, I will confess, not one now seems to regard me as both sane and sober. Only upon the stage, I feel convinced, will people take me seriously. That will be the end of it. I know that will be the end of it. And yet, I will frankly confess, all that marks off your actor from your common man... I detest. I am still largely of my Aunt Charlotte's opinion, that play-acting is unworthy of a pure-minded man's attention, much more participation. And now I would resign my dramatic criticism and try a rest. Only I can't get a hold of Barnaby. Letters of resignation he never notices. He says it is against the etiquette of journalism to write to your editor. And when I go to see him, he gives me another big cigar and some strong whiskey and soda, and then something always turns up to prevent my explanation. End of section 16